Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. The gap between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because we are in the first week of Advent right now, which means we are in a season of expectation and waiting. And it is important, though, that we remember that while we're waiting and expecting, that we remember the abundance of gifts that we currently have and should be thankful for, like the breath in our lungs, the shoes on our feet, and the food on our tables. Do not let the coming blessing diminish your current reasons for joy. One of the greatest joys in my life is Silas. He and my wife are a constant source of encouragement and motivation to me. I love it when he, he gets down on the ground and he, he points and he wants me to lay down so that we can play wrestle man. Um, he gives the best goodbye kisses of anyone I know, even though they're really slobbery and snotty sometimes. And he gets unbelievably excited about the simple things in life like garbage trucks and squirrels. Quite simply, he is the best thing that's ever happened to us. I mean, just look at him. Like a doll. But I have to remember not to let the coming blessing of the other baby diminish our current joy with Silas. Thank you. Soon we will have two children. Lalia is 15 weeks along, and we are expecting baby Barnes in May of 2018. And this, you want your name named after you? You were extra excited. Pierce, Pierce, okay. <laughs> this, this new reality has already radically changed the way I see the world. So for Christmas, always for me, it's always been the story of Jesus Christ, right? But this year, I couldn't help but notice that the Christmas story is the story of two babies. This morning, we read about the other Christmas baby. So grab your pew Bibles or your app or your personal Bible, and we're going to read together from Luke chapter 1. And while you're doing that, I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank, that, thank you that you are living and active and speaking amongst us, and we pray now that you would be our teacher, the one who speaks to us. May we listen to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are going to be reading a lot of scripture this morning, and we will begin at verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through 25 with only one stop along the way. Beginning in verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So let's take a moment and pause right here. As a church, we will be spending our Advent season in the Gospel of Luke. And this prologue is unique amongst the first four Gospels, well, the only four Gospels. There's no other introduction like this. Matthew, Mark, and John all jump right in to their narrative. And Luke 
wants to begin by establishing his credibility and telling the reader what his reason for writing is. And he makes a similar introduction in his other book, the book of Acts, and he addresses it to this character, Theophilus. And Theophilus can be an actual person that Luke is writing to, but Theophilus translates literally into friend of God. So it could just be a generic name for anyone who fits the description. But regardless, Luke wants to make it clear to his readers that he has taken it upon himself to gather evidence and put forth riveting and accurate information so that the reader might be persuaded. But persuaded about what? Luke wants us to believe with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Luke is concerned with order, persuasion, history, and truth. And the same could be said about this Luke. So we're going to pick up in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. All right, hold on. So I always thought that the Gospels, and especially Christmas time, were all focused on Jesus. I thought... Advent was about, you know, eight-pound little baby Jesus with Mary and Joseph and the angels and shepherds. But the first 25 verses of Luke's gospel do not even mention the key figure. Or does he? 
God is always the primary actor. And in this Annunciation story, he chooses to work with and through Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the angel Gabriel in order to achieve his objectives. And these purposes are both cosmic and intimate. This story about the miraculous conception of a baby is intertwined with both the history of God's people and then also the history of an old man and his barren wife. Gabriel assures Zechariah that his prayer has been heard. But what was he praying for? We could, of course, presume from the context that Zechariah had been praying for a child. But we can also presume, given the context of the entire gospel and greater scripture narrative, that Zechariah, along with the fellow Jews, had been praying for the Messiah to come. Now, many preachers draw a parallel between um, the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus, and rightfully so. However, the parallels between this morning's text and the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac would not have been lost on the early readers, and it shouldn't be lost on us either. So we have Zechariah, who's a priest, who has been a faithful follower of the Lord for many years. He's old, and he has no children. He's visited by a messenger from heaven who tells him that he is going to have a son, and he questions the believability of God's plans. The book of Genesis tells us about Abraham, who lived a life of obedience to God. He and his wife were old, and they could not conceive. God visited him and told him that he and his wife would have a son in their old age. And then do you know what Abraham did? Put it up there. He fell on the floor laughing. You would think that Zechariah would have learned his lesson from Abraham's example. But instead, he questions the angel. How shall I know this? In other words, he is asking God's messenger to prove it to him. And I like to think that Gabriel just shut him up then before he even had the chance to laugh. But Abraham and Zechariah are us. We hesitate at the notion that God is still doing profound and miraculous things. I remember when God spoke to me. I was in my early 20s, and we had just received word that my mom had stomach cancer. She was given a few months to live. And during this season of my life, I was really pressing into my faith. I was waking up at the break of dawn and pouring over scripture, journaling, reading devotionals, and praying like I'd never prayed before. And I was asking God for a miracle concerning my mom's cancer. And I knew the scripture that said to pray continually and offer my petitions and prayers to God. But one day I was reading a devotional that pointed me to 1 John chapter 5 in these two verses. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the, the requests that we have asked of him. One night before bed, I received an answer to prayer. I was begging God for my mom to be healed, and I got this distinct but unexplainable assurance that she would be healed. And I actually heard the following words in my spirit. Basically, God said, stop praying about it. It will be done. 
And over the week, the coming weeks, instead of continually asking my, my God to, to heal my mother, I started thanking him for what he promised to do. But I am a weak man, and as time elapsed without any sign of her recovering, my belief began to waver. The logic and the pragmatism started to creep back in, and my reckless hope and trust became guarded. What if God didn't heal her? What if I just didn't hear him right? And it would hurt too much if I was wrong. So I began to purposefully harden my heart so that I would not be too wounded if God's promises to me failed. In the text from this morning, we have a man, Zechariah, who comes from absolutely stellar Jewish stock. He's a priest. He's married to a daughter of a priest. He was chosen by God to enter the temple and offer sacred rituals on behalf of God's people. And as he fulfilled his duty, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, are clearly set apart by God, and yet they carry this immense burden of shame. It was their honor set before them that they would have a son, and that son would become a priest since he came from priestly lineage. But in a seemingly cruel twist of fate, no such birth happened. And in their culture's understanding of Scripture, Elizabeth was a public disgrace for her inability to conceive. Her community was assuming that she and or her husband had some grave sin in their lives in order for God to not give them a child. I mean, all throughout Scripture, the idea that God controls the womb is there. But these people also believed that, that a child signified God's blessing, whereas childlessness was a means of divine punishment. And as a pastoral note, I would encourage anyone who's struggling with that to look at John 9, where Luke sets this record straight and corrects this misunderstanding. Suffering is not always the direct result of a person's sin. Surely, Elizabeth and Zachariah have been crying out to God, have been petitioning God for a child. They want the joy of that. But they, to, to be honest with you, they also want the disgrace to go away. And as time drifted on, in their old age, I am positive that their hope must have diminished, if not completely extinguished. So it is somewhat understandable that when Gabriel presents this joyous news, Zechariah responds with more than a hint of doubt. But when he asks this misguided question, how shall I know? What is he wanting to know? That he will in fact have a son? Or he will have the son that Gabriel says he will have? God is not just promising the blessing of a child. He is guaranteeing a boy who is set apart and who will prepare the way for a long-awaited Messiah. Gabriel's effectively telling Zechariah and Elizabeth that they have been invited into God's redemptive plan in a very prominent way. This other baby, John the Baptist, is to be a man of destiny and to fulfill prophecy. The prophet Malachi, in the last book of our Old Testament, writes in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then Malachi finishes his book with these words. Behold, 
I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then just look back in Luke verse one, I mean, uh, chapter one, verse 17. This is what Gabriel says. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So let's do a brief recap. Zechariah is fulfilling his priestly duty. The lot has been cast for him to enter into what is the second holiest part of the temple. He's in this powerful moment in which he's burning incense and he's surrounded by a multitude of people who are fervently praying outside. And then if this wasn't already holy enough, a heavenly being comes and joins him in there. And and Gabriel tells him three main things. Your prayer has been heard, your wife will have a baby boy, and your son will be the promised prophet who will fulfill the role of Elijah. And if all of this is not too much to handle, Gabriel even tells him that John's not going to drink any alcohol. That's hard for Presbyterians to believe, but that's way harder for people in biblical times to believe. That just didn't happen. But in all seriousness, this guy has just received the best news in the most extraordinary of ways, and he still sticks his foot in his mouth. Perhaps it's a sign of grace that God allowed it to stay there. I wish that would happen to me sometimes. <laughs> Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the, sh- the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Essentially, it's supernatural certainty. It is what Zechariah is trying to find, and I believe it is in utterly short supply these days. Obviously, pregnancy is on my mind right now, and my sick wife is at home right now, and I can promise you it's more on her mind right now. But there's this common practice or etiquette concerning the enunciation of a pregnancy. We are told to be excited, but not too excited until after the first trimester. We're told to hedge our bets because the risk of miscarriage is so high. Last week, the opening of our favorite show, which is a family drama called This Is Us, dealt with this very topic. And this is a spoiler alert for some of you who haven't watched it. Kate has just found out that she's pregnant and has just informed her fiance of what should be joyous news. So let's watch this clip. Previously on This Is Us. Congratulations, you're officially six weeks along. We're pregnant. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, I'm not happy. I'm ecstatic. I'm a a quiver. I'm going to put on my happy song and I'm going to be all... No, no, Because this might not happen. In fact, it probably won't happen. What? I'm 37. And because of my weight, you know? You don't want to jinx things. It's not about jinxing. This is about hope that it doesn't turn disastrous. It's devastating to think that many of us react to good news in this cynical way. Whether verbalized or kept internal, the response for many of us is, it probably won't happen. And even if that's not your overwhelming attitude, 
I would venture a guess that there is at least a sliver of distrust in all of our hearts. It's definitely true of me. And this is a defense mechanism. It, it helps us to guard our hearts because when we do, we think that if we're let down, the pain will be minimized. I get that. I am a self-described realist with a really healthy dose of pessimist, and I know that hoping feels risky. And to be honest with you, sometimes it just it feels dumb. It feels foolish to hope. But God wants us to be reckless in our hope. He wants us to hope for more. He actually wants us to raise our expectations. Then, if or when we are let down, we turn to him and the church for comfort, healing, and then somewhat ironically, more of that hope. Now, I understand that many of you are experiencing extreme difficulties in your life and that your hopefulness is just taking a beating. The Jews, as they waited for the promised Messiah, had every reason to give up hope, and you might too. Let down after let down, seemingly endless turmoil, illness, or fatigue. But regardless of who you are and where you have been, I believe that we could all use an extra dose of hope this Christmas season. So here are my four suggestions for an injection of hope. First, do not be afraid of doubt, but instead make good use of it. Ask your questions to God. Find answers in Scripture and in the faith community because when doubt festers, it can snowball into a pit of despair. Second, do not rely simply on the power of positive thinking. Rely on your belief that God is good and that he is in control. Lori Davidson, our former uh, director of women's ministry, used to always say this, and she probably still does in Chicago right now. She'd say, God is up to something good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is good and that he is in control? Third, we sung about this this morning. Remember your Ebenezer's, and I'm not talking about Scrooge. 1 Samuel 7 has the prophet who takes a stone and strategically places it and calls it Ebenezer, or the stone of help. And whenever the Israelites looked at that stone, they remembered that God intervened and rescued them from danger. Remember the times in your life when God has shown up. Four, be bold and expectant. Pastor Rick reminded our session this past week of a verse in James 4.2 that says, you do not have because you do not ask. What are you hoping for? Like, really hoping for? Perhaps a miraculous healing or a loved one to find Jesus. Perhaps a job or a home. Maybe it's a child of your own or reconciliation with an estranged loved one. Also, are you praying for more hope, faith, and trust in your own life and in your relationship with Jesus. Faith is a gift from God, and we all need more of it. And what about your hopes for this church and this community and this nation and this world? Expect 
and ask God to do amazing things. So let me share with you a story of hope from our missions committee. Michael Blazer from Mission India recently reported to our committee and shared the year-end report on our three church planters and the three children's Bible clubs we supported. Our three church planters in Tamil Nadu planted five churches, reached 1,549 families, added 115 believers to the kingdom, and baptized 30 people. This is what happens when we trust God. And let me end with one final story of hope. Meg and Scott Kelsey are my best friends. I've known them since I was a kid, and they got married several years back. Now, Scott getting Meg is a whole different story of hope that I won't get into. I'm sorry, Scott, if you're listening on the podcast. When Meg first got pregnant, like anyone, she was ecstatic. But unfortunately, that feeling did not last long. Early on in the pregnancy, they discovered that their child had trisomy 13, which is a fatal genetic disorder. I watched and prayed as Meg bravely carried this child to term, knowing that a miracle was the only way that her baby would survive. And I cannot, for the life of me, even begin to imagine what it must have been like for her as strangers, coworkers, and acquaintances, all who are good-meaning, were incessantly asking her how excited she must be as her baby bump grew and grew. Meg and Scott turned to God throughout the pregnancy and held on to an understandably cautious hope. She gave birth to a beautiful baby boy on March 6, 2014. And this is what his obituary said. John Asher Jack Kelsey was born on March 6, 2014, to his parents, Scott and Meg Kelsey of Virginia Beach. He lived a very full two and a half days surrounded by family and friends that loved him wildly. His life was a gift and an incredible answer to prayer. On March 8, 2014, Jack's final moments were spent in his parents' arms as he went home to be with the Lord. This is absolutely devastating. This is the antithesis of hope. But, and this is what is distinct of being a Christian, is that hope is eternal. This is what Scott reminded me of last night when I asked him if I could share that story. In actuality, our hope is not isolated to this realm, but instead has both a heavenly origin and destination. Scott says he has more of an eternal perspective now than he ever has. And he knows what is to come because of what Jesus did. And baby Jack's life mattered too. This shirt has become a symbol of hope for many. Jack's condition um, caused him to have some deformities, one of which was an extra finger And um, with all of the pictures being taken in the hospital, there was a moment that was caught on camera where uh, little baby Jack put his hand up in a shaka symbol with, as you can see, it has six fingers on there. Um, And so this became a brand of sorts. And they began selling merchandise. And all of the proceeds benefit the children's hospital where Jack was born. In fact, they have a large 
um, surf contest in Virginia Beach where Jack is the sponsor of it and a bunch of money gets donated to the Children's Hospital because of that. And God has since blessed Scott and Meg with a healthy and huge toddler named Eli. Plus, they're very far down the path of adopting a chi another child. Remember, we do not serve a God of scarcity, but of great abundance. Zachariah and Elizabeth just wanted a healthy baby to love. And instead, they got a prophet who prepared the way for the Son of God. And we just wanted a few extra months with my mom. And so far, we have 10 years. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. If not in this life, then surely in the next. And now, some parting words from Pastor Luke. If anyone would like prayer, uh, we have a team of prayer warriors who would love to pray with you around the corner here by the wreath. And if you know me, you know that when I preach, I most of the time preach to myself. So I get it completely that hope can seem really risky. And I just want to encourage you to be bold in the way that you hope because this church family, the people around you, are the ones who are supposed to be there for you and pick you up when things don't pan out the way that you expected them to. And to remember that hope is eternal. And that is just something that will never be taken away from us as believers in Christ, that we get to the, the riches of heaven. So receive the blessing. Father, in your Holy Spirit, would you equip your people with all of the hope that they need to do everything that they need to do this week and beyond, especially during this season, God, that they would point people back to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.